I just thank you so much that we can come to you today and, and approach your throne with confidence that you hear us and that you respond to us. Uh, I do thank you, Lord, for the England win. Uh, we do pray your blessing upon Colombia and upon Sweden as well. I know many of their fans are mourning. But I thank you, Lord, for the blessing that that's been for England uh, and the United Kingdom, uh, a rallying point uh, for our nation, an encouragement, a strengthening that no matter what happens, uh, there's been a blessing that has come uh, because of that. And I thank you for that blessing, Father. And I pray that as churches all across our nation are holding football parties uh, this week and, and for next Sunday uh, for the finals, I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd give them boldness to share Jesus and that we really would see many people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even through this. Uh, so we do lift up our nation to you, Lord God. We do pray for those that don't know Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that there would be a mighty outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We continue to pray for that because we know it's essential for many to come into the kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you'd pour out your spirit on our nation. In the name and authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and Father God, I know that the, the European Union is in quite a bit of turmoil right now. There's a lot of things happening with uh, trade wars and rumors of trade wars and, and things like that going on. And I pray, Lord, for your peace to come into the EU and uh, for your plan and your purposes to be revealed for this block of nations. And I pray for all the nations of the EU, again, that there would be a mighty outpouring of your spirit, that many people would become followers of Jesus Christ. I also pray, Lord, for North Korea. I pray, I thank you for some of the progress that's been made, but I pray, Lord God, that you'd prevent anything from moving backwards uh, in terms of that progress. I thank you, Father, that it sounds like the end of the civil war in Syria is just about upon us. And Father, I pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in Syria, those who have been displaced, those who are refugees, and those who are living there now, that you would strengthen them and encourage them in the midst of an extremely hostile environment, uh, both spiritually uh, as well as physically. And so we pray, Lord, though, for an end to the hostilities in that nation. We pray for peace on the Korean Peninsula and for an end of the nuclear ambitions of North Korea and even for a reunification there and that the gospel would go forth in power on that peninsula. We pray, Lord God, for other hot spots, flashpoints in the world like Venezuela uh, as they are teetering on the brink of complete collapse. We cry out to you for that nation. We also, Lord, pray for the new president of Mexico. We pray that he would be a righteous and godly uh, governor in that nation, a righteous and godly president, uh, and would lead that nation in a good way and in a way that really breaks the back of the drug cartels in that land so that Mexico might have peace and prosperity as a nation. Uh, and there's so many things that are happening in our world, so many things going on, and so we lift all of that up to you in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, now as we go to your word, I pray that you'd open it up to us. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us 
how to live more prosperously, effectively, and lovingly in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would fill me up now so I can bring your word to your people today boldly and faithfully. And I thank you for the privilege of gathering here today. Uh, we pray against all kinds of interference today that we can focus in on you. Our hearts and our minds would be at peace so we could hear everything that you would say to us today in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you and we praise you for all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Today I'm going to read uh, from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 in the Old Testament and then go over to... Um, Actually, it's 2 Corinthians, sorry, not 1 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. My bad. 2 Chronicles and 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I'll start from verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Menuhites, uh, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save." And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you will not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yahaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jehiel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, 
Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Korathites and the Korites stood up and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. What a great story. And then we go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, sorry. Chapter 10. Paul's writing here and he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, many people have heard the name uh, Reese Howells. Uh, Reese was uh, a missionary. Uh, he served in South Africa for a number of years. He was from, uh, from Wales. Uh, went to South Africa, had a very effective ministry there, then felt the Lord calling him to go to Wales and, uh, uh, and set up a Bible college, which he did. And extraordinarily, the Lord just brought in, sovereignly brought in the funding for that Bible college. It was rather mir miraculous. But if you've ever read the book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, the thing that you learn about Reese Howell's is the influence that he had in World War II. Many people don't know this, but Reese Howells and the people with him 
throughout World War II were actively interceding for victory uh, from the Allies, by the Allies. And extraordinarily, and many times, the Lord would show Reese Howell and his company of people what to pray and how to pray uh, that in ways that later was discovered that these things were, had been secrets, there was no way they could have known that this was going on, and yet they were praying the exact right thing at the exact right time, and obviously we know the outcome of World War II. What most people don't realize, we tend to think of World War II as a victory that was won simply by military might. But actually, if we begin to look closer, what we begin to see is that World War II was a war that was won every bit as much through prayer as it was through military might. And there's so many things that would take a long time to go through all of it. There's so many things that happened in World War II that turned, that made all the difference in the outcome of the war uh, that just made no sense unless you could begin to see it in a spiritual context. The same thing was true with Jehoshaphat. He gets this word about all these people, all these armies coming against him. And notice what he does. He doesn't first call his army. He doesn't first go and count the number of troops. He first goes to God because he recognizes that the battle they are about to face is not a physical battle. It's actually a spiritual battle, a battle that would be won in the heavenly places even before it was won on the face of the earth. And you see how he prays and what he cries out to God and you get the prophetic word and the prophetic word is God's going to get the victory and then the next day they go out for the battle believing that God's going to get the victory. They start worshiping. Not The worship doesn't bring the victory, by the way. The worship is in response to the promised victory. The worship is a testimony of faith. They get the victory and God does the whole thing. He sets the enemy camp into confusion and the enemies destroy each other and the victory comes. And the victory that comes is not a physical victory in the physical realm done by natural forces and natural armies, but it is a spiritual victory. And it leads me to wonder how many times we face struggles and battles and little wars in our lives that we think are physical, but they're actually spiritual. We think they're physical, but they're actually spiritual. How many over the years, you, you would not believe the number of families that I have spoken to that have wonderful relationships, a harmonious household throughout the week except for one time every week. And you want to guess what that time is? Sunday morning. Sunday morning, uh, alarm clocks don't go off. Sunday morning, people wake up on the wrong side of the proverbial bed. Sunday morning, people get into arguments. Sunday morning, things just don't seem to work out. And so many times, people get mad at each other and they think it's just laziness or incompetence or uh, whatever. They blame other people when... Who is possibly interested in our families having problems on Sunday mornings? 
Is it not a spiritual force? Why do we assume it's physical and natural and not spiritual? Or we might have a situation at work and, and uh, maybe a woman, she goes to work and it seems like that her supervisor, her line manager, is always against her. And she's like, well, what do I do? You know, I, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm a, I'm a good person. Uh, I'm not doing anything wrong, and yet I'm being attacked and I'm being put down. Why do we assume that it's because there's a problem with the line manager instead of assuming that there's a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual battle that is going on that is leading us into this kind of situation. Or the number of churches that I've counseled with over the years who they're, they're fighting over things like the color of carpet. I mean, like really, who cares what color the carpet is? As long as it's blue, it's fine, right? <laughs> but they fight, and these churches, they split over things like the color of carpet. Who is most interested in churches splitting up and falling apart? It's certainly not Jesus, it's certainly not the world, and it's certainly not the people in the church. The one who is most interested is the enemy of our soul, is, is Satan. And this spiritual reality that is around us is very real, it is, it is around us all the time, and many of the things in our lives that we attribute just to natural problems actually have a spiritual source. And many of these proverbial battles that we face, whether they involve people or not, whether they involve situations or not, many of these proverbial battles that we face actually have spiritual roots, not natural roots. And we need to learn how, if you will, to fight in the spirit if we're going to have the victory. We need to learn how to do battle, to do warfare in the spiritual realm, if you will, if we're going to have the victory. Now, warfare language is a bit dangerous because there are a lot of people who mistake that. And we always have to remember that when we're using warfare language, it's not ever against people. Because Paul tells us clearly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our war is not against people, it's never against people. Your brother in Christ is never your enemy. And we need to understand that. Human beings are not the problem, they are fundamentally not the enemy. Now sometimes they can behave like the enemy, but they're not the enemy. And the ultimate goal of everything that we do is not victory so that we squash our enemies, the ultimate goal of everything that we do is the glory of Jesus and people experiencing the love of God in all of its fullness. But that said, we need to learn how to engage in this battle. As Paul said, you know, we're, we're doing warfare, but we're not going to wage war in the flesh like the worldly people do. So how do we do this? How do we engage in this? as Christians. I'm going to talk about this this week and next week to give some different insights into the battle that we're engaging in. And in order to do this effectively, 
we need to avoid, first, avoid three common mistakes. There are three mistakes that are being made all the time. We, the first mistake is that we fail to recognize the spiritual battle going on all the time for our jobs, for our lives, for our families, for our marriages, for our churches, for our city, for our region. There are spiritual things happening all the time around us, and we need to train ourselves to be alert to it. It's a bit like training ourselves to be alert to the fact that there's bacteria. You know, if you hear that there's cold, the cold virus is going around, you know, something should go off in your mind, ding, 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 I need to be washing my hands, I need to be avoiding public places, and if I'm in a public place, I need to make sure I'm washing my hands, I need to be practicing good hygiene, and if you do all of that stuff and promote good health in yourself, then likely you will overcome that. You don't see the cold virus, but you know that it's around because there's sickness around. You don't see the spiritual dynamics, but you know, you can know that they're happening because of some of the the consequences of them. The second common error that we need to avoid is that we mistake what are fundamentally spiritual battles for battles in the natural. And consequently, we start to act in an inappropriate way. We make people out to be the enemy. We make victory over people the goal, and that is never acceptable. The third common mistake is that we tend to use worldly techniques and strategies to try to win our battles instead of spiritual things. And this even includes the spiritual battles. So if there's a, a spiritual battle in, in, uh, in the church, you know, then people say, well, if I just do enough politicking around, I'll, I'll persuade people that my way is the right way. Well, that's a natural thing, but it's a spiritual issue. Or if the wife says, you know, if I can only teach my husband how to be a better husband and act in a better way, then I'm going to have a better marriage. Do you know what? You're using a natural approach to a spiritual issue. If you spiritually as a wife are the woman that God intends you to be, praying for your husband, interceding for him, then he can become the man of God because God will deal with him. God's more effective at that and so on and so forth. So we got to avoid those three mistakes because if we fall into them, we lose. Every single time, if you fall into one of those things, you lose. You can't win. So you got to avoid those mistakes. Then the second thing here is you have to follow what is called the rules of engagement, what, what I call the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement in, in actual warfare are the rules by which you can apply physical force in any given situation. You know, in some situations, uh, you might be told, well, the rules of engagement is, are that you can't shoot unless you're shot, unless somebody shoots at you first to defend yourself. You know, that's rules of engagement. And there are actually spiritual rules of engagement that we need to be aware of. First, you cannot assume someone else's responsibility or take responsibility on their behalf. You can't assume someone else's responsibility. So if you come and, and say you have a good friend who's in a spiritual battle, you can't come and say, oh God, I repent on behalf of my friend. You can't do that because the responsibility of each person is to repent. You can't repent for somebody else's sins. 
Uh, or you might say, oh God, please help me to forgive. Well, actually, you're trying to give your responsibility to forgive to God. Because God's already given you everything you need to forgive. He's already done that. So you cannot take responsibility for someone else. You can only be responsible for what you're responsible for. You can't take your boss's responsibility, your spouse's responsibility, a fellow Christian's responsibility, or God's responsibility. Now, I see some people, they pray and they say, Oh God, strike them down, smite them with all the smiteness of your mightness so that they crumble like crispy critters, like dust into the ground. You know, to pray like that, you're, you're taking on God's responsibility. And God doesn't tend to work that way. I know, it's, it's kind of sad sometimes, because there's sometimes I want to be able to pray that way, right? You know, if only. But, you know, if I could pray that way, probably the world would be about 50% fewer people today. I just, it's just the way that it is, you know. That's why God doesn't give me that power, nor does he give you that power. Yeah, so we have to be careful in how we pray. That's the first rule of engagement. Second rule of engagement is that you cannot fight where you do not have the authority to fight. You cannot fight where you don't have the authority to fight. How do you have the authority to fight? Well, if there is some legal right that you have, you know, for example, if you're married, if you're married because of that covenant between husband and wife, you can pray for your spouse. And you have a right to pray for your spouse. Now, you don't have the right to take responsibility for your spouse, but you do have the right to pray for your spouse or to pray for your family. If you own property on a street or you are leasing property, you're paying rent for property, you have a right to pray in that place. You have a right to play in that, pray in that place, to do warfare in the spirit in that place. A second thing, if you've sacrificed, if you've given up something, I mean, and this has to be a genuine sacrifice. You know, if like in your church, you know, if you give a, a pound a week, that's not a sacrifice, that's a token. And a token doesn't gain you any kind of spiritual authority. But if it's a place where you've invested yourself personally, financially, spiritually, then that gives you the ability to pray on behalf of your church. If you've had suffering, if you've really suffered for something, now, for example, I've suffered to be the pastor here at City Temple. Uh, there have been certain things that I have gone through, and because of that, I've paid a price in my suffering that gives me a certain authority in this place to pray and to lead and so on and so forth. If you have a stewardship, if you have some area of control, you know, if, if you are a manager of people in your work, do you know because of that stewardship, you can pray for the people that work for you, to bless them, not to manipulate them, by the way. You know, if you pray, oh God, let them give me more money and more honor and more reverence, that's not God's prayer, that's self-prayer, and that won't get you anywhere. But if you say, God, I really am praying for this guy that works for me, that you'd help his marriage, uh, that they'd have a healthy family, a healthy marriage, you've got authority over that because you have influence in that person's life. You've got a stewardship there. And sometimes you have authority because God gives you a spiritual assignment. One of the reasons why we pray so frequently for the Korean Peninsula is that we believe that God has called us to do that. 
And so we've been praying faithfully for more than a decade now for Korea, that, that God's will would be done there. And we'll keep doing that. So that's the second rule of engagement. You have to have the authority to fight. A third rule of engagement is that in what you do, you must faithfully represent God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your activities. You have to represent God's heart. You have to represent God's character. So if you're saying, God, smite my friend, that's not the heart of God, and you're not faithfully representing God, so you're not engaging according to the rules of engagement. You need to operate by faith and not by sight. Many times we are looking for something to happen, or we're thinking that if we just see it happen, that it's going to happen, and we need to operate by faith to know that God is at work even when we don't see him at work, to know that things are changing even when at first we might not see them change. Eventually we will see it. So we have to operate by faith and not by sight. We must operate out of forgiveness and repentance. If you are not forgiving those who have wounded you and repenting from your own sin, then you don't have authority to engage in spiritual battles. To the degree that you have any unforgiveness in your heart and to the degree that you have any unrepented sin in your life, you are undermining your authority. And finally, you have to obey the Lord and not presume you know what to do. You have to obey the Lord. And sometimes the Lord will tell you to do some really strange things. And sometimes the Lord will tell you to do some really ordinary things. I know a guy uh, about, uh, oh gosh, almost 30 years ago now, uh, he was praying for his city and God told him, he said, take some stakes of wood, uh, write a certain scripture verse on these stakes of wood, go to this point, this point, and this point, uh, the four points around the city, drive the stakes all the way in the ground as an act of prayer over your city. And he did that, and within a very short time, he saw the, the, two, the, gang, the leaders of the two biggest gangs in that town come to faith in Christ. He did that. The funny thing was, after he told that story, you had dozens of churches all around the country. Everybody was getting stakes of wood and driving them into the ground. They were presuming that what God told him to do in his city, they should do in their city. And that's not right. We have to obey the Lord. I mean, many times we do these Jericho walks, and, and I've been on Jericho walks, and I'm not opposed to Jericho walks uh, as, as a thing, but how many times did God tell the people of Israel to march around a city in order to conquer it? Once. One time. You can't presume that because something's worked in the past, it's what you should do, or you can't presume that there's some kind of activity that you should do. Some people presume that they're going to have victory if they go around and they pray for everybody, and, and they pray for, say, say it's in your work environment, you go around and you're praying for everybody and anointing every seat with oil, and you think, okay, if I do that, then everybody's going to come to faith in Jesus, or there's going to be a turnaround there. But actually, God's strategy might be that every Friday morning, you buy coffee for everybody in your office. And you say, well, there's nothing spiritual about coffee. There is if God tells you to do it. 
And so we have to do the things that God tells us to do, which means we need to be listening very carefully. And sometimes God will tell us to do some strange things. And sometimes God will tell us to do something that doesn't make sense at all. And sometimes God will seem to lead us to do something that seems very ordinary. Well, we need to be listening and we must be sure that we are obeying the Lord. And that's our rule of engagement. Those are our rules of engagement. And so whenever we're doing battle, whenever we're wrestling in the spiritual realms, whenever we're seeking a godly outcome, we have to do so according to these rules of engagement. Otherwise, we will weaken what we do and undermine what we're doing. And as we do this, we must shun the weapons of the world's warfare. This is what Paul says. You know, He says, we don't wage war according to the flesh. And by flesh in this sense, he's not talking about the sinful aspect of our humanity, but he's actually talking about according to our life in this world. There are things that people do in this world, you're seeing it happen right now, that are waging war according to the flesh that we must not do. In the flesh, people use power. People use power. One of the big things that's happening now with Twitter and social networking, uh, social media, all the shaming of people and attacking people, it seems righteous in one sense, but you know what people are doing? They're actually using power to put other people down, to, to quench genuine debate and genuine discussion. And it's absolutely wrong for us to use power in that way. And yet many Christians are doing it. If you go online, you'll see dozens, if not hundreds of Christians who, as soon as somebody says something that someone disagrees with, all of a sudden they're flooded with all kinds of hate email and hate Twitters and, and hate reviews and, and all this stuff. In the name of Christ, it's very ungodly. It's a worldly form of warfare that we must not use. It is not about power, and we won't get victory if we engage in power. Another thing that happens in the world is politics. And I see Christians doing this all the time. Now, by politics, I don't mean that it's wrong to vote, it's wrong to run for office. No, those are good things for Christians to be involved in. By politics, we're talking about the dark underbelly of politics, where people are making secret deals here, there, and everywhere, uh, you know, behind closed door kinds of things, negotiations, uh, using that to, to shut some people out and include other people in the inner circle. And politics is another way that the world wages warfare that as Christians we must shun. We do not want to become political animals. Paul said, you know, we, we engage who we, you, what you see is what you get. Who we are is what you see. We're not going to engage in underhanded, scheming kinds of ways. It's going to be open. We're going to be up front. And that's the way we have to be. A third thing that we must shun that the world does is propaganda. It might be fake news, or it might be semi-fake news, uh, but there's propaganda around us all the time. And the world is just constant, constant propaganda. You look on, on TV, and it even comes out of entertainment and TV shows. You know, the propaganda that it's better for a relationship if you live together for a few years and then decide to get married. Do you know that study after study after study has demonstrated that that is wrong? 
that healthier marriages are those where people do not live together and do not sleep together, but prepare themselves and then get married. But people don't look at the studies. We've got this propaganda assaulting us all the time. And we must not be like that. And sometimes we are like that as Christians. Even in the church, we've got propaganda, we have politics, and we have power, and we must shun these things and avoid these things because this cannot be our basis for victory. Because if it is, you will never know whether your victory was from the flesh, from the devil, or from God, and most likely it's not from God. So we have to avoid these things. We must not wage this war, as Paul says, according to the weapons of the flesh, but we need to use our divine weapons, our weapons that have spiritual power to really pull down the strongholds and bring breakthroughs. And so what are some of our weapons? I want to tell you the most important weapon of spiritual warfare. And you need to know this, uh, and you almost never will hear this, but I guarantee you this is absolutely the number one most important weapon, if you will, and that is this, obedience. Obedience. Obeying God is our, if you will, weapon. What if you've got somebody at work who is making himself out to be your enemy? What does God tell us to do to our enemies? Smite them, cut off their heads, and no. What does he tell us to do? Love. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. That's obedience. That's obedience. And how many times do we want to curse people instead of blessing them? No, yesterday I was driving back from a, a visit with, uh, with the McPhees, and we were driving back, and, and you know, one car that I absolutely, I hope nobody drives this car. I'm sorry if I'm going to offend you. One car that really gets under my nose all the time is the Prius. You know, I, I'm just not a big fan of the Prius, because it's all the private hire guys, you know, they're driving these Priuses. And, and so we're coming back, and I'm merging over, and this Prius tries to dash uh, uh, around me and it was you know almost caused an accident and everything and and you know and I was you know so tempted to say oh God smite this Prius and the driver in it you know and and all of this but you know you get angry but you say no Lord bless them give them a good day give them a, a perfect driving record whatever but we bless so obedience is important. And when God tells you to do something, and sometimes God will give you that nudge in your spirit that you're supposed to do something in particular, then you need to do it because it is the most important thing you can do. And God will bring the victory as simply we obey Him. As simply we obey Him. Second is prayer. We need to pray, 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 and pray some more. And we can learn a lot about prayer from looking at Jehoshaphat's prayer today and how he prayed. You can study that and you can learn about it, but you need to pray. A third very powerful thing you can do, sorry, is worship. Particularly worship in spirit and in truth. Worship by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. 
And as we worship the Lord, and you see what it does, it focuses us on God, on God's love, on God's kingdom, on God's rulership, not on those that annoy us. And as we are focused on God, and as we are focused on the things of God, then God brings the victory. That's what was happening with Jehoshaphat. They were worshiping and thanking God for the victory that he was going to bring, not that he had already brought. And they were doing that out of faith, and God brought the victory. So worship in spirit and in truth. Another thing is the Word. The Word of God. Declaring the Bible. Standing on the truth of the Bible. What God says in His Word is true and we need to stand on it and live by it. And that's actually a part of our warfare when we're contending in the Spirit for these things in our lives. Another thing is what I'd call the prophetic. Sometimes God will give us a prophetic revelation, insight, word, or scripture that applies to our situation. And when he does, we need to declare it and say it over and over again. But another thing that we can often do, and you'll see this in the prayer room right now, is what I call a crafted prayer and a crafted declaration. Do you know you can take a prayer, you can write a prayer, and you can write a declaration that you then say that you then pray and say repeatedly for an extended period of time, and you can often see a breakthrough because of that. The prayer that we have in the prayer room right now, you'll see it on, the, on top of the model, is a crafted prayer and declaration. It is a prophetic thing that we do. And you know, one of our greatest, one of our greatest weapons is rest and confidence in the Lord. So often what we do, we get so upset and we get so frenetic. Maybe we're having problems at work, you know, and it just occupies all of our thoughts. Or we're having problems in our, in our family and, and we're always thinking about it and it's always dragging us down and it's always feeling kind of negative. Uh, or we're having a struggle at, uh, with, with people in our community or in the church and, 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 and we're looking at it and we're getting all tense and all anxious. And you know what? The Bible tells us, hey, rest. God's in control. Have confidence in God's ability to help you through whatever situation that you're in. Have confidence in God's ability to give you the breakthrough that you need. Have confidence in God's ability to show you where you need to go and what you need to do. But I'll tell you this, God will often not speak to you while you're running around frenetically. God will often not speak to you while you're in the throes of anxiety. It is only when you quiet your heart and say, okay, God, I have confidence in you. I'm listening to you and waiting on you that many times God speaks. And I'll also guarantee you that God almost never speaks as quickly as you want him to. Almost never. Almost never. So you have to rest and have confidence. And you have to remember your keys for victory as you're engaging in this. One key to victory is that we glorify Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about your life. It's about Jesus. And you keep your focus and your eyes on Jesus. Another key to victory is faith. Again, walking by faith and not by sight. Choosing to trust and believe in God. Another key to victory is our perseverance. 
being willing to keep going even though we don't see instant results, even though we don't see the outcome that we want immediately. We keep going. We keep pressing in. We refuse to quit. We refuse to stop. We refuse to back down. And our final key to victory really is love. And we have to remember, love is a zealous, self-giving commitment to other people for their benefit. It's focused on others as God has focused on us. Our ultimate goal in this warfare, in the spirit, is God's love and the removal of everything that hinders God's love and keeps people from experiencing God's love so that God's love in Jesus Christ can be experienced and manifested in every life, in every business, in every home, in every family. I wish I could give you, you know, the 10 easy steps to winning the battles that you face. But that's not the way it is. Because you have to listen to the Lord. You have to engage according to those rules of engagement, avoiding those errors, refusing, shunning the weapons of the world's warfare, uh, employing the spiritual weapons of our warfare, remembering the keys to victory, and keeping that focus in on God, His good, His will for all people. But if we do that, and we discipline ourselves to make this not a Sunday thing, not a private Christianity thing, but something that we do every day of our life, whether you're working for the government, you're working for the city, you're working for an accounting firm, for a bank, you're working as a plumber, you're working as a, a carpenter, you're working on the railroad, wherever you are, whatever you do, every single day, you remember this, that you are constantly engaged in a spiritual struggle so that the love of God could be experienced by ever more people here in London. But as we engage in these spiritual struggles, as we engage in these battles, according to the Spirit, we engage with confidence that God's desire is to show His love in and through us to everybody around us. And He will do that to the glory of His Son, Jesus. Father God, thank You so much. Thank You for loving us. Thank you for your grace and mercy manifested in our lives. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you intend to do. Lord, I pray that as we worship you, you would give us strategies for the battles, for the fights that we're engaged in, these spiritual battles in our own lives, whether it's in our families, our work, church, our communities. Give us your strategies that we might walk in victory and see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that more and more people would experience your love through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.